This is Big Talk. Michael Glab here. Last week, we aired part one of a roller coaster ride of a conversation with Bloomington artist David Ebbinghouse. He's been making art in every conceivable medium and format using a dizzying array of materials since he graduated from Indiana University's School of Fine Art back in the early 1970s. In the 80s, he took to the streets and alleys overnight and decorated the town's walls and pavements with graffiti art using the alias Tomcat Spray. Some of his Tomcat Spray work has been preserved and will be exhibited at the Brick Room Gallery on Courthouse Square beginning April 1st. Sales of the artwork will benefit Middleway House. Now, if you missed last week's Part 1, go to WFHB.org, pull down the Programs menu, and select Big Talk. And while you're at it, why not click on the big red Donate button and make a secure contribution to WFHB. Now, let's continue our chat with David Ebbinghouse. His conversational style mirrors his philosophy of art and life. He goes in circles, he zigs and zags, but he always ties the loose ends together. You wrote a 2014 Writer Magazine article titled, How I Found Myself Designing Couture Clothes from Materials Found in Dumpsters. You're still doing that, designing for Trash and Refashion, which, by the way, is April 10th this year. I got asked by a friend, uh, Gail Hale, about 10 years ago, said, we're doing this trash and refashion and you ought to design something for it. She said, well, you're already doing it. You know, you, you already get clothes out of the dumpster and alter them. That's what we're doing here. That's when my nephew had a girlfriend, a tall blonde girlfriend in the fine arts department. So we enlisted her to be one of the models. And then another young lady that was in my meditation group, she was game. We did the first show. Uh, I, I just kind of used what I already had around. I didn't really do that much work, you know, new work for the show, but everybody loved it. And so I thought, well, maybe I should be open to this. So now what I do is um, I go to thrift stores every winter. I have certain thrift stores that I go and mine. And I've got people that give me things like parachutes. I had two different ladies gave, gave me nylon parachutes that I writ dyed and made big ball gowns out of. So I, I kind of have this routine now. I'm, I'm like, a, a, I'm always a couple of years ahead. Like, I really hate it. Like when you're a month before the deadline and you go, oh, I got to do something. You know, <laughs> like that kind of a forced situation, that doesn't work for me. What yeah. I do is I follow the energy and then I have this backlog of stuff laying around. And then I've got my models who want to walk for me, who know me and who know my work or who, you know, got excited by what I did last year. So then I let them try stuff on. Then if they like light up like a light bulb when they try it on, then that's what I'm looking for. Or, or maybe I say, okay, I'm going to do like last year, I, I did these vaccination tags. So Mary Hunter that was at the south of town at the recycle resources there gave me all these leftover veterinarian vaccination tags. Oh. So I had a red heart, I had a blue shape and a, a green clover shape. So I had enough of them that I could drill a bunch of holes in them and link them all together so all three of my models were wearing these kind of 60s uh, A-line mini dresses. So I went from just doing single designs to doing like two or more like variations on a collection. I get to have a lot of fun with this because instead of just going, oh, I got to do something in a month, you know, and 
who knows if I'll get it done in time. You know, that's not me. I, I don't roll that way. So I have this whole backlog of stuff. I, I've got a whole closet full of things that the girls can try on. And I've got things, I've got ideas for next year. I've got some ideas for the year after. I got all this denim out of the dumpster. So I was taking all the waistbands off and figuring out how I can make those into a dress. And I have all these um, blue strips of leather that I took from a couch that some students left by the side of the road. So I pulled out my knife and skinned it and brought back the leather. And I'm going to use that with these um, waistbands from all these uh, denim jeans. Anyway, that's a couple of years out. You know, David Ebbinghouse, I have to share this with the listeners. Before we started recording, you warned me. You said, beware. I talk in circles. I go around and around. And maybe I'll come back around to the original question. And you said, keep me in line. And I, I said to you, heck no. I like the whole idea of going in these kind of circles. You know, when you look at art, I, I think people have the wrong idea often about art. Like they... I run into this all the time where they go like, what does it mean? You know, like there's some kind of linear path for the thinking that you're supposed to pick up on and then follow that to like some kind of goal where you get there, a bell rings and you get a prize. That is not (laughs) the way art works at all. You know, it's more like you're standing in the middle of a map and there are all these roads that are going off in all these different directions and they all interconnect in some form as you get farther and farther out, there are other roads that connect and they all, it makes this giant matrix. And it's all interconnected. It's kind of like a neural pathway in your brain. So when you look at art, you want to be open-minded enough to realize that there are all these possible interpretations or associations that you can follow. And then if the art's any good, those associations link up as you go out, you know, farther and farther diameters out from your, you know, you, from you are here. You know, then if you follow some of those out and they, they start cross-linking, then those cross-link with linkages provide additional meanings and also your own experience. It'll link up to your own personal history. And I, I got this so so strong when I did these performances at the Bellevue. Um, I was running the, the local artist co-op there for a little while. That would and, be the um, Bellevue Gallery and you were running that. Yeah, I wanted to find out about that, David. Well, Go we can ahead. talk about that a little bit. But anyway, what, what, I, what I decided, what I found out was I, I did this performance and this friend of mine who, who's a writer and she's passed away now. But anyway, she said she really felt like I was not like tricking her, but like she she felt like somehow she should have gotten more out of it or she didn't understand what the point of it was exactly. It affected her. It, it she, she felt aroused in some way, but there was no resolu- no easy resolution for her. And that disturbed her. And I said, no, no, that's a that's a great thing that, you know, that's fine. That that's a, that's all right. I'm not going to give you like the easy answer. You know, you'll you'll provide that yourself. So then I think maybe like five years later, she came back to me and she said, you know, you were so right. Uh-huh. Since that time, that's become a reference point for me for these other experiences that I've had. And then it's kind of like your favorite. It's like when you danced at the prom with your girlfriend to that song. Then ever after that, that song became like a reference point and other experiences attached to that in your memories. And then that became more meaningful. She said that's what happened to her with that uh, performance, that with time and her own experiences and that as a reference point, it all gelled in a way that was really meaningful for her. So that that really made me feel like my work isn't in vain because, you know, as I said before, often I feel like I'm just like in a vacuum, you know, hearing Uh my own echo. But getting back to the Bellevue, what happened was uh, Brad Laubenbach and Jim Andrews, 
started this artist co-op um, up above what in, in the Allen building before they renovated it up above the Uptown Cafe. Good old Jim Andrews. Yes. 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 Yeah. One of the one of the really great artists here in Bloomington. And in my opinion, underrated. The guy's always been all of his works are so beautiful and wonderful. After a couple of years, those guys were burned out. I mean, can you imagine like trying to put on a show every month and finance it yourself, pay the rent, get p- people to donate? I mean, it's really, it's like a full-time job, only you're doing it for nothing. And you want to be an artist to show your work. Then you find out you're not an artist anymore. You're a gallery owner. So they had a meeting and they said, okay, all the people who've shown here, if you want this to continue, you're going to have to do something because we quit. At the end of that meeting, somehow I was the head of the Bellevue. I didn't really want to be, you know, but I thought, well, maybe benign neglect will be a, a operating manifesto for this. And and I was lucky that I, I did have some people that I could ask for money, you know, and keep the thing open. Somehow I knew enough art and artists in town that I could always come up with a show. And, you know, once you start, then they come to you. It was sad in a way because it would go up and come down and go up and come down in, in terms of people being able to babysit the gallery, you know, just to keep the doors open. And people would come in very enthusiastic and I'd say, look, can we, can we even this out so that it'll last more than a year? Finally, I just had to quit. You know, after about 10 years, another artist friend of mine said, you know, you're really sabotaging yourself because the Bellevue is no longer being seen as the cutting edge or it had its time and it's over and you should move on and quit trying to resuscitate a dead body. And I thought, well, that's an interesting point of view. I may not agree with your reasons, but I think I'm going to, go along with that. So I bailed, <laughs> you know, after a while. I mean, you can only do it for so long and, and you run out of resources. The good thing, though, was that I used it as a staging ground to do some of my installation performances, which then I was able to do, when was that, in 1992 or 93, when I had my show at the Sofa Gallery, now the Grunwald Gallery. Betsy Sturrett, another really good artist, good painter, she knows how to do the politics also. So she had the the university stuff, but she needed to have someone in town. So my title was director of the local artist co-op. So that looked good on paper. So then I, I was on our board of advisors. And then I noticed that there was a big hole in the summer that nothing scheduled and no money. And so I said, Betsy, is this a conflict of interest if I have a show in that hole in your schedule? Normally, I think that's kind of bad because I'm on your board of advisors. That's kind of self-serving she could oh no 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 yeah you can do it please do uh, it so yeah. so we did a good show there and once she saw what I was doing she expanded it a little bit and I got to do a performance at the opening of the show and the same performance at the closing of the show and so that was really good I that performance turned out really well yeah. unfortunately it, it didn't get documented because their video camera they were using had a glitch in the head so every time oh. the head would go around it would make a glitch so like every second, there's like a, you know, a, a yeah. bar. I yeah. know, maybe I can get that cleaned up someday. But, um, but th- it's kind of against my philosophy to try and have the document of the experience be the, the art product. Because if you were there, then you got it. It's like, it's like when you go to a movie, right? Like, wh- right. where is the art experience there? It's in the receiver. It's in the person watching the movie. You don't like exhibit the film cans. But this is what we tend to do in our Western society. We, we want to crystallize it and make it into property and then commodify that property. And then someone collects that. And then that eventually gets locked up in a museum where on the one hand, it's available, it's accessible 
to someone like me who can walk in and see it. But then on the other, on the other hand, it's in this, you know, it's behind glass. It's hermetically sealed from real life now and preserved. There's something weird about that. That's not good. I mean, there are good <laughs> aspects to it, but you know, there's a certain life that's in the art that's part of the, the context provides that. And as soon as you take it out of context, it's not the same thing anymore. It's like if you cut a piece of the wall out of a graffiti, like you go in the alley and there's one of my graffiti and you cut out the wall. People have actually done this with Banksy's. You know, they want to commodify a Banksy and you can't, but they want to. So they cut out the piece of wall, then they put a price tag on it, which is a hilarious oxymoron to me. It's yes. like, ha ha, you got duped. You didn't get it. You know, the whole point was when you were walking down that alley and you didn't expect to see art, but all of a sudden here's this provocative political message that's in your face. And you have to re- you have to respond to that, even if it's just to turn your head away. And that, that is not the situation in the gallery where you know you've got a gold frame around the Banksy. It's being auctioned. I, I don't know. People don't get it. You know, I, I find that amusing actually. Maybe one day they will get it, as long as uh, guys like you, men, women, and everybody on the gender spectrum, figures out that that's what art should be. Another part of your art, David Ebbinghaus, is uh, beads. You have been to the subcontinent and you have collected Tibetan beads. You're making jewelry. Okay, here's where we get into trouble again because Uh-oh. people expect you to be like, like they want a label, right? Like they, they say, okay, David Ebbinghaus, artist. And then they think like a painter. And, or, or then they say, oh, well, David Ebbinghaus is a jewelry designer or a clothes designer. You know, to me, like art is art and creativity is creativity. And I happen to like these beads because back in the hippie days, hippies wore beads. And I was wearing some beads and a friend of mine who's a painter gave me this strand of beads and said, oh, here are these red coral beads. And I thought, hmm, I think these are glass. You know, I better go and research this. And sure enough, they were glass, but they were bohemian beads from a previous century. They were actually antique beads. So because of my mad German scientist mentality, I had to go and find out everything I could about all this. Like I mentioned, Tupton um, Jigme Norbu, Professor Norbu, you know, another one of my mentors or teachers, a reason why I couldn't leave Bloomington, his wife had a Tibetan Z bead that she showed me. And I wanted to know about this. And I asked him, where can I read a, a book about these Z beads? He said, um, there's no book. You write the book. I went with him to India in 1978 to Dharamsala. And um, then I went back in 79 and then 80, 81, 83, 85, a number of times. And every time I would do research, I'd uh, take pictures of beads, ask people to do the ethnographic studies and find out what do you think about these? What are your myths? And, you know, what's the anthropology here? And then I published this in a a small magazine out in California called Ornament. Once again, I, I had no idea this was so shocking to me, but in the land of the blind, the guy with one eye is like the guru, right? <laughs> yeah. So here I was thinking that I don't really know much about this, but I want to share this with other bead enthusiasts. And then all of a sudden, I'm the expert in Tibetan Z beads. I thought that was hilarious. So I kind of kickstarted the uh, more recent interest in Z beads. And of course, uh, China has made this a big deal now. They, it's kind of like us in our relationship to the American Indians. China has a kind of similar relationship to the Tibetans. Right. So this is all very esoteric and wonderful. And so the big movie stars in China have these Tibetan ZB. Sting has one. Steven Seagal has one. You know, this is like a very hip thing to have. So because I did this research early on, 
when I went to China a few years ago, I was a very big fish in a very small pool, you know, among the bead fanatics in China. They were, I, I was laughing really because this one woman, I, I met her and she, she made a zillion times more money off Z beads than I ever made. I, I could never afford to invest in them back when I was doing the research. And um, she was like literally shaking when she met me. <laughs> I thought that was so funny. So, like to her, I was a celebrity. So within a certain sociological substratum, you know, I'm, I'm well known for designing necklaces, using ancient beads, and I've educated myself over the decades. And my friend Michael Winston does, he, he taught himself to do gold work using granulation and filigree, basically recapitulating all of the handworking that was done 4,000 years ago. And then by watching him over the decades do that in gold and wanting to keep him focused on the gold, when I wanted silver work done, I would just do that myself. So I kind of learned silversmithing by osmosis by watching him. So he does the gold granulation and I do the silver work. I, I taught myself to be a silversmith. I design necklaces. I have, I have a website. I have ancientbeadnecklaces.com. Uh, we have an Etsy shop. We have a first dibs shop. Oh, I was doing the uh, Tucson Gem and Mineral Show for about five years. We'd go out there. And th that was an interesting adventure to drive all the way from here to Tucson and then spend two weeks meeting the public there. And actually, I did as much buying there as I did selling because all these people from all over the world would come there. And of course, I have the knowledge, so I know what's good to buy from, from the Afghan dealers, from the Pakistani dealers. You know, Chinese people would come. They'd want to buy things from me. But then COVID came and messed the whole thing up. So it was a lot of work. And then I had these timeshares that I inherited from my parents that are in Florida. So we'd drive Route 10 all the way from Tucson, all the way to Florida, through, through Louisiana. And I'd stop and visit Mark Bingham. People in Bloomington probably remember Mark Bingham, composer, songwriter, an amazing musician. So I get to drop in on him and keep up my friendship with him, then go to Florida and then have R&R &R and get, get over two weeks of tr trying to deal with people out in Arizona. So I, I think I'm, I'm over 70 now. I think I don't have to work quite so hard doing that anymore. <laughs> but that was really fun. I mean, I really enjoy these kind of challenges and I enjoy meeting people. But financially, I've never gotten rich doing any of this stuff. David Ebbinghaus has spent his entire life, I would assume, trying to help redefine art and how we look at art. And the beauty of it is, today I'm learning that he's redefining the art of conversation as well. And yes, <laughs> we are going in all kinds of circles and spirals, but yet we always come back to the point. And it's beautiful. When you say I'm trying to redefine art, actually, I did redefine art for myself. And I had various role models, like I mentioned Andy Warhol. I have to mention Joseph Boys. He's uh, passed away in 1986. He's no longer with us. But he was a tremendous role model for me as far as what is the real focus of art and what are you really trying to accomplish with that? He was a kind of enchanter or a kind of shamanistic artist in Germany. I, I tried to get a Fulbright. Instead of going to graduate school, I thought I'd go over there and study with him. But he got kicked out of Dusseldorf for being too radical and became oh. an international art star. So I never really got to study with Joseph Boys, but he had really changed my thinking. Actually, my thinking had changed and it kind of he kind of validated. It was like in parallel, you know, where I discovered like, oh, he's thinking, he uses different terms, but he's thinking along the same lines that I am. So by redefining how to be an, a different way to be an artist, 
because the, the traditional way of being an artist was not going to work here in Bloomington. I mean, if I had a studio and, and I go every day from nine to five and have an open sign on the door, I'd go out of business in two months. You know, there's just no way that the normal way of being an artist is going to work here. And if I went to New York and tried to get a gallery, very, you know, very doubtful that I could get anyone to pay attention to me because I'm not working in the same vernacular that they are in New York. I mean, I'm, I'm cognizant of what they're doing and it's influencing me, but I'm not, I'm not one of them, so to speak. Oh, the same thing happened with my jewelry. Like back in the 70s, I took some of my Tibetan beads and I, I called up this woman, Jade Hobson, that worked for Vogue magazine. I saw her name and I thought it was kind of cool. She'd go to the hardware store on Canal Street and make like cool belts, you know, using hardware. And that would be in Vogue magazine. So I thought, oh, here's somebody thinking in a way I can relate to. So I met with her and I showed her the beads. Oh, she loved it. Oh, she was so flattering. And she liked my long hair. And, you know, it was really <laughs> cool. And then she said, you know, the way this works is we, we would call you and you would show up the next morning for the photo shoot. And then we'd use the beads and we'd credit you, you know, in, in the credits in the magazine. But obviously you would have to live in New York. And I said, oh, well, I guess I can't do this because I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to leave. Right. You know, I, I, I want to live in Indiana. And I mean, I, I, had, I had another thing. Mark Bingham introduced me to this guy, Paco Grande. He was the one that discovered uh, Jessica Lang and his friends, Peachy and uh, Ted Bafalocos were making this movie called Rockers down in Jamaica. And they wanted somebody who could come down there and work with them on this movie. And I guess my main qualification was I could smoke the ganja and still be you know, <laughs> functional. I mean, they said, oh, it'd take about six months to do this. And I thought, well, knowing how movies work and especially if they're going to do it in Jamaica, I'd be, I'd be gone for probably a year. <laughs> and um, my wife would probably not be too happy about that. So I better be not, better not be going down there and working on this movie with them. I did get opportunities when I'd go to New York, but I could, for some reason I could never take them. So here I am back in Hoosier land, you know, doing all the stuff. Now, if you want to see David Ebbinghouse's work, you can go Sunday, April 10th, over to the Buzzkirk Chumley Theater. You see the Trash and Refashion show. He's got uh, works in that. You also have something coming up at the Brick Room Gallery. Give us the details, David. Yeah, that's 107 North College. It's right there next to, between the Orbit Room and Blooming Tie on the square. And um, these are the three dozen panels that are from the Lenny's Graffiti Project where I've made actual, I've made paintings out of them. This isn't graffiti art. I mean, we have to call it something, right? So in my article in the writer, you can read about it in this, uh, this month's writer. And they okay. call it you know, graffiti art. It comes out of graffiti art, but it's not graffiti now. These are paintings. I hate to sound immodest, but these are really good paintings that are using all this imagery that goes back to the, you know, to the seventies, actually. The opening is uh, five to 9 p.m. April Fool's Day. Come to the opening. Um, this is a chance for some adventurous collectors to buy some really good paintings and the prices are negotiable. I mean, I'm going to try and make you pay more than you want to because we're going to give the money to the middle way out. <laughs> so that's a whole raison d'etre for doing the show, you know, as a gallery show with prices on the, there'll be suggested prices or minimums or something like that. But anyway, come to the opening. You'll see some really good paintings. The culmination of all my work as a painter for decades one other thing I, I can say about this, I was talking to my old friend, Gregory Highland. He used to, he was my art buddy here in Bloomington. He lives on the Lower East Side in New York. And he was, I asked him if he would write an introduction 
for the show or like a press release. And he wouldn't do it, but he talked to me on the phone for hours. Uh, when I was down in Florida, I had like about four, two hour conversations with him. And he said, you really need to David. Oh my God, you're a colorist. Your, <laughs> your compositions are great. I hadn't heard him, Greg, for a couple of decades. And he calls me up out of the blue and said, oh, I was having this conversation with you in my mind. I thought maybe I'd just call you up and have the actual conversation. This guy <laughs> has a great eye. I, I love yeah. it. He gives me great feedback. So he was saying, I need to, you need to write a new rubric on, what is it, appropriationist art. And this is a big thing in New York, post-structuralism, appropriation art in the 80s. Yeah. He said, you're doing it in a different way. If a critic in New York would talk about your art in terms of the 80s appropriation style, it would be like along the lines of, well, that boat has already left the dock and you weren't on it. So he said, you know, that would be like sabotaging your career if you tried to relate it. But he said, you need a new rubric. So I was thinking about this. I was reading uh, Dawkins' The Selfish Gene, and he talks in there about memes. He actually invented this term meme. Yeah. Be like gene, only it's a mental creation that goes like an image. And like now with the internet, everyone talks about memes. This has become like a common vocabulary. So these are images, from my perspective, these memes that I've been dealing with since back in the uh, mid-70s, and that I've made stencils and used in the graffiti. These are visual images that carry themselves forward. They reproduce themselves in some sense in the minds of the people that perceive them, and they go forward. And they don't have to be true or accurate. They can mutate. Like on the Internet now, people mutate them. So anyway, come, come April 1st to, this, uh, to the opening, put down a bid on one of these paintings, what, here's what I'd really like to have happen. I'd like to have 15 people from our community spend an average of $2,000. That'd be $30,000 that we could give to the middle way house. You know, if I just sell a couple of paintings and I give them $1,200, ho-hum, who cares? You know, so what I really want to do here, and see now I, I, I've got my, mor my moral shield here, got my <laughs> crystal armor on. I, I'm losing money on the show. I had, to, I had to spend money to mount all these and I, I spent a month and a half, you know, putting this whole thing together. I will, I will not be, I will not receive any monetary uh, benefits from this at all. And that's cool that I don't expect to, but I want, I want to then use that as my moral lever to say, okay, now community, you know, you've enjoyed my art for free for years. You know, I've been around here kicking up dust and causing trouble. Here's the payoff. Buy a piece. It's a part of Bloomington history. These are really good paintings. I don't mean I don't mean to sound immodest, but I'm just telling you these are really <laughs> good paintings and big. Yeah, you can get like you can cover your whole living room if you want. In fact, maybe too big. Maybe we need like some public restaurants or public spaces for some of these. You can call David Ebbinghouse an artist. You can say what he creates is art, but the real idea is David Ebbinghouse's life has been a piece of art. David Ebbinghouse has been our guest this week. David, thanks so much for joining us on Big Talk. Thank you so much. I really enjoy having the platform get some of my ideas out there. Thank you. Thank you.